0: Time has produced some of the most incredible humans to walk the face of this planet we call home. People who've endured the most harrowing ordeals, pushing their body to the extreme. Whether it's plane crashes, abduction, jungle survival, or even medical anomalies, we explore them all. Who are these people? What happened? Where are they now? Join us to find out. Not me, not today, podcast. Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here and welcome to another episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast.
1: Hello and hello to everybody wherever you are in the world. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm great, thanks. I'm also looking forward to hearing this week's story. So let's get right into this. Leisha, what is the story?
0: Today's story is a great one. It's not about one survivor, but six and their saviour... Peter Warner. I stumbled across this one while procrastinating at researching a different one <laughs> I planned for this week.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate your honesty.
0: You're welcome. I also had a friend and my sister send it to me um, when this was nearly all done. So this story it was a bit different and exciting and I wanted to do it instead. I'm happy to say I don't have to give a warning this week and it's in fact almost the opposite. We have a story with some really happy endings that will give you the warm fuzzies. So if you're looking for adventure and a happy ending, you're listening to the right episode. I'm also going to say that there are some tricky names for me to pronounce here, and I'm really going to try to do my best. I Googled the pronunciation, so if Google's wrong, then I will be too. My apologies in advance.
1: Let's do this.
0: There are so many parts to this story that it's taken me a while to get them in order. So I'm starting with Peter Warner, who isn't necessarily a survivor, but he's out here saving people like some sort of superhero, and it just keeps getting better and better. Peter Warner was the youngest son of Arthur Warner, one of the richest and most powerful men in Australia at the time from the 30s to the 60s. Peter was groomed to follow in his father's footsteps. Growing up, he always sailed. He was into sports like boxing and swimming, outdoor adventuring and physical activity. He described himself as the black sheep of the family. His father was ambitious and more materialistic. Peter even described his brother as more of his father's type, being a studious scientist type. Peter was the complete opposite and took to the water whenever he could. He even became obsessed with survival himself after a little incident in his own boat where he was washed ashore somewhere and someone managed to see him and get him help. However, ever since that moment, he was fascinated by survival and the sea. His side hobby was navigation without instruments, just using the old ways common on the islands. He loved astronomy too. Peter wasn't interested in taking on his father's business. It wasn't his dream. Peter was drawn to the water and adventure, fascinated by the sea and visiting other parts of the world. So at 17 years old, Peter ran away. His father caught him when he returned a few months later and made him enrol in law school in the University of Melbourne. Well, after just six months in law school, Peter couldn't take it and ran away again. He set sail across the sea after taking one of his father's boats and spent the next few years sailing from Hong Kong to Stockholm and Shanghai to St. Petersburg. During this time, his family were less than pleased and begged him to return and finish his education. That was the last thing Peter wanted to do. Peter went to Sweden and served for the Swedish and Norwegian navies and sat the exams in Swedish. However, after two years, he returned home, proud as punch with a Swedish captain's licence. His dad couldn't care less and felt Peter's last stint was just a delay in finally accepting his destiny and following in his father's footsteps.
1: What did his dad do? I know you said he was powerful, but what industry was it?
0: Arthur was a tycoon for Electronic Industries, which was the largest electronics producer in Australia, as well as several other businesses. Almost like Australia's Donald Trump before he became president. (sighs) Peter's dad encouraged him to go down the route of accountancy after his father apparently told him it was the easiest route. Okay,
1: but Peter wasn't having it.
0: Well, Peter trained for five years as an accountant and started to fall in line with his father's wishes or so Arthur thought. Peter had other ideas. He was still craving the ocean and adventure and would visit Tasmania whenever he could. In 1955, Peter met the love of his life while visiting a friend. Her name was Justine and she was an occupational therapist working in the mental hospital. She had a wild Irish and Scottish look with dark brown hair and blue eyes. She was also a passionate and talented artist in her free time. Peter was swept off his feet in his own words. He was crazy about her. He proposed to her once and she didn't answer. It took him two months to ask her again and this time she accepted the proposal. Justine's parents were less than thrilled about it.
1: Well he is running away to sea a lot and not shy about his uh, disinterest in his dad's business.
0: (laughs) Well guess what he did after the engagement? You guessed it. He ran away to sea as one last hurrah before getting married. Showing up two days before the wedding. No
1: way, I bet his bride wasn't pleased.
0: Well, you want to know what they did after the wedding? They both ran away to sea. <laughs>
1: That's tremendous.
0: <laughs> Peter had worked on Swedish ships doing the Japan-Australian run and managed to talk his way onto a honeymoon berth. According to Peter, it was marvelous and lasted five wonderful months. They both badly wanted children, but they had a really rough start, trying for six years. They suffered six miscarriages and one premature baby that died just a couple days after birth. They essentially gave up. Peter, not wanting to put his wife through that trauma, decided to adopt a baby girl, Carolyn. Carolyn gave them the happiness and the break they needed because just three months later, Justine fell pregnant with their daughter, Janet, who they welcomed into the world healthy. A few years behind, they welcomed a baby boy, also named Peter. That's lovely. Isn't it though? In 1960, he moved from Melbourne to Sydney. He still had inner entrepreneurial instincts, but wanted to use that towards his passion. So he bought some crayfish boats and wanted to set up a fishing business. I don't mind fighting villains, thieves, and rogues, but not bureaucrats, he said in another interview. In 1966, he set sail to Tonga to ask the king if he could possibly fish in their seas and neighboring islands. He'd seen poachers nearby, so decided to ask for permission, a request that was denied. So Peter, a little bit defeated, headed back, taking a detour near Atta Island. Now before I go any further, I want to describe this island to you and a brief enough history, because it has a fascinating but troubled past. Atta Island is a small, rocky volcanic island in the far southern end of the Tonga Archipelago, which is basically a fancy way of saying a group of islands. It's approximately 160 kilometres southwest of Tongatapu. In 1863, Thomas McGraw and his crew kidnapped almost half of the island, selling them into slavery in Peru and to the Europeans. Men, women and children were sold. It started out as using British and Irish people from Australia and New Zealand to entice them to work. Eventually, they decided to forego the illusion niceties and straight up kidnap and sell them for profit. Shortly afterwards, the rest of the inhabitants were taken back to O, so they wouldn't be kidnapped and sold into slavery too, and the island remained uninhabited ever since. Okay, so it's September 11th, 1966 now, and we're back with Peter and his crew in his boat having a nosy around the waters of Atta Island and laying some crayfish traps, when he notices some burn warks and smoke on the side of the cliffs. In the tropics it's unusual for fires to start spontaneously he said in one interview aware of its history and puzzled by the burn marks he decided to anchor his fishing boat and set off in his dinghy towards the island to investigate a little closer as peter gets closer he notices a wild naked boy with hair down to his shoulders crying well sir <laughs> no i'm kidding but he does leap off the cliff and swim into the dinghy, swim towards the dinghy He's shortly followed by five other naked boys screaming wildly and leaping off cliff faces into the sea.
1: He came across some of the boys from Lord of the Flies by the sounds of it.
0: <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. Well, apparently they were so wild and screaming that the crew initially reached for their guns. Eventually, the first boy swims up to the little dinghy and with some gusto and desperation exclaims, My name is Stephen. We are castaways. There are six of us and we reckon we've been here 15 months. Okay. Okay. So now I'm gonna take you guys back to their story and how they came to be on the island. It's all sorts of exciting and like if Disney did Lord of the Flies. I mean, there are some hardships, but my gosh, what they accomplished is astounding.
1: <laughs> That's mad. How did they get there?
0: These six boys, Cian, Kolo, Luke, David, Stephen, and Mano, were boys from a Catholic boarding school in the Tongan capital. I'm gonna spare you all my horrific attempt at pronouncing that. They ranged in ages from 13 to 16 years old. Being sick of school meals, bored and generally teenage boys, they decided they wanted to spice up their week and have an adventure of their own. They borrowed, in their minds, a 25-foot whaleboat that didn't belong to them and planned to set sail to visit Fiji, which was about 500 miles away, and or New Zealand, which was more than three times that.
1: That's some adventure.
0: Well, they got it. Probably not the adventure they're looking for, but they got it. They spend a few days packing themselves a small amount of supplies. Two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, no scurvy for these boys, and a gas burner. But it didn't occur to any of them to bring a map or a compass. What? I know. I'm sure they were way too excited about this trip and adventure that they probably thought they'd be cooking and fishing at sea, laughing it up on their way to Fiji in their whaleboat. This made me laugh so much when I read it, because when I was a little girl, I built a spaceship out of a cardboard box and was convinced my friend was going to pick me up in her spaceship, so much so that I packed sausages, sandwiches and candles, so excited for the possible adventure that logic meant nothing to me. I wasn't 13 or 16, but I can relate. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) So eventually, the night of the escape came about, and the skies were clear, with just a mild breeze that kept the ocean a little choppy. They all headed out on their big adventure to Fiji. That evening, they decided to drop their anchor, try some fishing, and then they all fell asleep. Whilst they were asleep, the rope to their anchor broke. Oh, no. Well, they got a rude awakening. They awoke to water crashing down on their heads in the midst of a storm. Being just young boys and novices, they hoisted the sail in the windy weather, hoping to head back to the shore. The wind chewed up that sail and destroyed it in minutes. Next, the rudder broke on their boat, leaving these six boys floating in the sea with land nowhere to be seen, Fiji just a dream getting further and further away. They drifted helplessly out at sea for eight long days. They had no food and no water. In an attempt to survive, the boys ate fish they caught the first night and used hollowed out coconuts to catch rainwater. They would then share this out evenly between them, each having a sip in the morning and evening. On the eighth day floating lost at sea, they spot a little island on the horizon. This was Atta Island, but of course they didn't know that. But as I said before, it's not a sandy beach tropical paradise we're expecting from films. It's a chunk of volcanic rocky island more than a thousand feet high.
1: Thank you for reshaping that mental image for us all there.
0: (laughs) No problem. It was a stroke of good luck for these boys. Their boat was starting to break up and was taking on a lot of water. So with the aid of planks, they decided they were going to have to paddle it to the island. Abandoning the sinking ship, they swam a day and a night, washing up on a rocky ledge on the cliff face. As one would imagine, they were exhausted and battered. The boys were too weak to climb any higher. So together, they burrowed a cave into the cliff face with their hands. They spent the next month catching seabirds with their hands Drinking their blood and eating them raw. That's
1: such a savage thing to do, but that's what boys would do all day long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They also ate young coconut shoots that were growing out from the parts of the cliff face. They spent a month like this before finding a possible route to an extinct volcanic crater on the top of the island. The boys decided if they were going to survive, they were going to have to work together. They made themselves a routine and grouped themselves into pairs. Their main goal was to improve their living conditions and survive. They set themselves a routine. They would have a routine of morning prayers and planting young banana shoots as the existing trees were not bearing enough fruit. Fishing lines were made from vines and a fire was produced by rubbing two sticks together. They even had a way to deal with arguments, because for those of us familiar with Lord of the Flies, arguing could cause a problem. The boys, if they fought, would be spaced and put in time out, allowing tensions to ease and the problem to be solved later on.
1: Now that's interesting. They had the common sense to realise that these problems would happen over time naturally. It's very smart of them to have that system. It really was. So finding food wasn't an issue for them then?
0: No. At this point, food wasn't their main concern. They had bananas, coconuts, pawpaws, which you pick so you don't need to use the claw, (laughs) and chickens, which had been left there to populate in peace, as well as the fish from around the island. Water was a concern. Whilst there, it seldom rained, and they did struggle with thirst. However, they worked together and tapped trees and found a few pools of stagnant water to make it last. They also used hollowed out tree stumps to catch and store water. To start off with, all they had in ways of tools was a piece of iron that they sharpened on a stone. Eventually, they came across two knives. Remember, a 100 years ago, it was inhabited. So to avoid boredom and entertain themselves, Mano decided to fashion a guitar out of two coconuts and wire from the planks that they'd swum ashore with.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. I know a few people that have probably done the same thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've seen pictures of this guitar and I will try to include them on our Facebook and Instagram. It's the cutest thing ever. It's more like a ukulele than a guitar. It's so cool. And he still has it to this day. They then had the incentive to create songs. They composed five songs in the traditional Tongan style. They also kept a daily log which proved to be so accurate it was only two days out when they were rescued. They even made themselves a makeshift gym. At one point, Stephen fell on the cliff and broke his leg. The boys helped him up to the crater and set his leg using sticks. They even joked that they would do his chores while he lay like a king. Naturally, they weren't expecting to just sit around and wait for someone to rescue them, so they made a logboat with a cabin. Now, just hoping to get to any civilization, not just Fiji, they packed their logboat with some food supplies and set sail.
1: I've said this before, and I know this isn't, has a nice ending, but come on, boys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they got just a mile offshore, hit the rough cresting waves, and broke apart, sending them all swimming back to the island. They decided to stick to signal fires. They managed to keep going for over a year, taking turns to make sure it wouldn't go out. Wow. Four vessels went by in the time that they were there before Peter and his crew showed up.
1: Okay, so we're all caught up now on why this wild tribe of boys were on the island when Peter got there.
0: Yes, we're all caught up with who these wild, naked, screaming boys are, or we can continue the story. Okay. Peter radios back to shore and informs them that he's found six boys claiming to have been living there for 15 months. I saw somewhere else that it was 18 months so it may be somewhere between those two. Anyway, after a bit of a wait, the people on land informed that those boys had been declared missing over a year ago and had been stated as dead. Their families had even held funerals for them. So here's the absolute kicker. They bring them back to shore. Normally you'd expect a family reunion, medical teams, all cheers, right? Yeah. Well, when they got back to shore, they were actually arrested for stealing that whale boat from over a year ago. No way. They did receive a medical checkup and found that the boys were actually incredibly fit. They even found Stephen's leg to be remarkably well healed.
1: Well, a diet of coconut bananas and chicken will do that for you.
0: (laughs) That does sound like a good desert island diet. Anyway, here are where things get a little more kooky. Whilst the boys were in jail, Peter came up with a plan. Naturally, as anyone would, he realized that this was a story Hollywood would eat up. Using his dad's business connections, he gained global rights to a movie. He used this to get the boys out of prison on the condition that they helped make it. They agreed and the boys were released to their families.
1: That's such a good idea.
0: So finally, as you can imagine, they were overjoyed that their boys were not only alive and out of jail, but they had almost thrived whilst on the island and were in great physical condition. As for the movie they made, the footage they got was so poor that the movie was pretty much an instant flop. In fact, no matter how much researching I did, I couldn't find it.
1: So what happened to the boys after that?
0: Well, the king that Peter had originally requested permission to fish from was so impressed that he requested to see Peter. He thanked him for bringing home his subjects and asked Peter if he had any requests as a thank you. What do you think he asked for?
1: To be able to fish there, right?
0: Yep, pretty much. He asked if he could set up a business in the town and fish in the local seas. A request that was this time granted. That was the final encouragement Peter needed. He quit his father's business and started his own. Peter also managed to convince his wife to move to Tonga with the kids on the condition that they keep the house in Sydney in case this adventure was to go belly up. She wanted somewhere they could live. His new crew for these fishing boats? Well, these fine young strapping boys, of course. All the boys were then hired to work with Peter where they all got to experience their common passion of adventure and the sea. The families of the boys and other Tongans offered to share their fishing secrets and methods with Peter as a thank you. Oh,
1: that's so cool. So what happened to them after that? Do you know?
0: Oh, yes. I went and researched some more and this is actually just so exciting. This is an adventure that is far, far from over. Peter's wife sent Peter ahead to Tonga to set up his business while she packed up everything back home ready for the big move. When he initially moved, she tried to convince herself that it was short term, but she hated it. However, once they settled in a bit more, she embraced it. Pretty soon, she was running the local art society and the Red Cross and the bridge clubs, and she set up the first bookshop in Tonga.
1: That's so good. I love that. What about the boys?
0: They went on to join Peter and his ships, having some mini adventures of their own. Two I'm going to share with you now. Peter named one of his boats Atta, after the island the boys were found on. And it was on this ship we have our first story. We're skipping forwards about 10 years to 1974, when Mount Mano, now in his 20s, and his fellow crew headed out to go fishing. Only to find themselves stranded on a reef coral with a kinked propeller. It was the Minerva Reef, to be exact, which is between Tonga and New Zealand. The crew aboard the Atta radioed Peter, who was not on board at the time, and organised a rescue mission to help take the boat off the reef. Peter came to the rescue with a different crew and a boat armed with explosives. They took those explosives and literally blew chunks out of the reef to free up the ship. Jeez. Well, then he used a big old sledgehammer and smacked the propeller straight. The Atta, just barely working, cracked and putted its way back to Australia. It was here she was in for the makeover of a lifetime. She was cut up the middle and they added 12 feet. The Atta came back bigger and better than before. Finally, when the makeover was done, we are led into the second half of this mini-tale. Peter, Mano and the boys headed out from Evans Head on New South Wales, Australia, to give the boat a spin and try fishing in it. It was out in the ocean that Mano noticed an unusual reflection of sunlight ahead on the horizon. At first, he thought it was a mirage, but soon realised it was a ship stranded upon a reef of volcanic coral. It seemed to rest perfectly upon the coral reef, unable to move. It was Middleton Reef, 400 kilometres east of Evans Head, pretty much in the middle of the ocean. The flashing sunlight Mano saw was actually from the passengers aboard the boat desperately trying to get their attention. No way. Yes way. He had always been keeping an eye out for abandoned ships or anyone who may need rescuing. Today was that day. In their ship, they get a little closer, but due to the weather, they needed to keep their distance. The horseshoe-shaped coral had provided the stranded boat almost a little cocoon of calm water. However, that was not the case with the ocean between the Atta and the stranded boat. The winds were high and the water was rough. Throwing a dinghy over the side to go get the helpless men would pretty much be suicide and a massive risk to the safety of everyone on board both ships. Mana was helpless, but was certain that there were men aboard that ship that were causing the glinting. He expressed his concern to Peter, who was still captain aboard the Atta. Peter was more than happy to oblige with the investigation. He had a look through his binoculars and realised that there were men aboard that stranded ship.
1: Well, wow, I'm sure there's not many people who have come across castaways that have actually been one themselves. I
0: know, right? So cool. Well, Peter, with his knowledge of the tides, worked out the best time to get closer and launch the boat to help whoever might be on the stranded boat. Peter's knowledge of these waters told him that the sea was calmest at dawn. So they waited all night. And just when the stars were losing their brightness to the rising sun and the rain and wind had eased, Mano hopped into the dinghy with some rope he carried over one shoulder. It looks like Mano might have had a little trouble keeping priorities straight as he apparently ate a couple of seafood delicacies right off the coral bed on his way there. He might have felt a little bad when he got there because he found four starving sailors on the saucepan which means little saucepan in Welsh, down to their last pack of matches and very little fresh water left. They had been living off tinned food and raw fish for the previous six weeks. The men aboard even joked with Mano saying that they'd been starving for weeks aboard the boat and he just swanned across the coral plucking himself lunch.
1: (laughs) His all-you-can-eat ocean buffet.
0: Right. Well, Mano and Peter stayed aboard his ships. They had many adventures together over the years and found a few castaways. Peter is now 93 years old. Mano is 70. They are still the very best of friends and live close to each other. You can catch a small clip of them on YouTube and it is just the most heartwarming thing ever. However, don't let his age fool you, Peter is in no way slowing down. And at the age of 88, he wrote three autobiographical books detailing his experiences. Everything from his early life to his adventures overseas. Part one is called Astor Adventures Ashore and Afloat, released in 2016 Part two is called Ocean of Light, 30 Years in Tonga and the Pacific, released in 2018. Part three hasn't been released yet, but since the last ones were two years apart, I imagine it may be at some time this year, but I don't actually know. Ocean of Light includes the story of him finding the castaways on Atta. You can order these online, and I imagine they are quite the read.
1: I'd love to read some of those stories.
0: Me too. In 2015, Spanish explorer Alvaro Cerezo spent 10 days on Atta Island with Colo, one of the other castaway boys, where he recounted his experience on the island all those years ago, which apparently will be available in the summer of 2020, so I'll be keeping my eyes peeled for that. I'll include any photos I can on our Facebook and Instagram pages. So if you want to see them, don't forget to like and follow those.
1: That was such a cool story. Almost three in one. It was. If you want to hear more of the Not Me, Not Today podcast, you can catch us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Click subscribe, the five star, and leave us a review. You can also catch updates and pictures on our Facebook and Instagram. Just head over to Not Me, Not Today podcast, or at Not Me, Not Today PC on Twitter. Just give us a like and follow the profile. You can also head over to our website, notmenottodaypodcast.com.
0: If you'd like to get in contact or send us your suggestions, pop an email over to us at notmenottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Until next week, stay alive. Bye. Bye.
0: Not Me, Not Today Podcast.